Okay. <clears throat> Thank you so much. What a pleasure and a privilege it is to be here in Chicago, which is, in fact, the first and only leg on my international trip. <laughs> because I have been asked to speak at this event uh, at least three different times. And uh, it never worked out in my schedule. So I happened to get the call. I was in America. And uh, I get the call. Would you be able to come? You know, I, I don't like to say no three times. And uh, if I can. And um, by the way, it's one of the keys to Shalom Dice. And, uh, <laughs> and so I said yes. And after it was already booked, etc., you know, I at some point mentioned it to my wife. And she said, you can't travel then. Uh, our daughter Rivka is giving birth uh, around that time. You can miss the bris. So I called back. I said, did you start advertising the event? They said, yes, and people are very excited. <laughs> so I said to my wife, tell her to wait. <laughs> and uh, in fact, uh, she, had, and she wouldn't tell us if it was a boy or a girl. Because if it's a girl, it doesn't make a difference. Everyone knows that. You know what I'm as, uh, as, as they say in Israel, Lo chashuv ben o bat, ha'yikash yiyeh brit. You understand? So, so, Baruch Hashem, my daughter had a baby boy this Monday, and I visited her in the hospital on Tuesday, and then Tuesday night I flew, I got to Newark this morning, and I flew to Chicago. Tomorrow morning I fly back to Newark, take the afternoon flight to get back to uh, Israel on Friday for the Shalmzacher. So this is my only stop on my international uh, speaking tour. And uh, I want to uh, thank so much the opportunity to be here in Chicago. And, uh, you know, and for such an important cause, Shalom Bayes, right? Trust me, I'm, that's why I'm only doing one speech. So uh, <laughs> learn by doing. <laughs> And I'm not the only one. I met somebody who says, I'm going to see you tonight. I said, oh, you're coming? He says, I have to. It's for my Shalom Bias. <laughs> Otherwise, I want to get it over my head. So, uh, so this is obviously something that's very important. Right? Obviously. It, it is the bedrock of who we are and what we are. So I want to, I want to start us off with two Maisim Shahayim. Yeah, true stories. I only tell true stories. I'm not that creative. I can't really make up stories. But Baruch Hashem, enough bizarre things happen to me that it's okay. <laughs> yeah? Um, I, uh, I was uh, asked to do marriage counseling for a couple. I never do marriage counseling because I have no qualifications. But occasionally a couple calls up and says, listen, we've been to three counselors, two rabbis and a Kabbalist. You know what I mean? And that's it. We're on our way to the basement to write the get. You know, you can't mess this up. Then I'm willing, you know? If the patient's already dead and they ask me to operate, I'm, I'm willing. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, so I, I, I can't really mess this up, right? This has happened to me a number of times, and except for one, I, I managed to save the wedding, uh, the marriage, twice, actually. There was one time I told the couple up front that they really should just end this now. And... Uh, they decided not to listen to me, and they gave her another try, and, uh, and he walked out on her and left her in Aguna for many years. And uh, he was willing to give a get at the time. There was, there was nothing, they had nothing in common. There was no basis to this marriage whatsoever. But there was one time I'm talking to this couple, and, uh, and they were killing each other, as only a husband and wife can. 
because the closer you are to somebody, they know all of your sensitive points and they know just where to stick the knife in and turn it. You know what I mean? Like only a husband and wife can really do that to each other. So uh, I, it took me a while to emotionally disarm them and get them to stop killing each other. You know, we slowly worked it up to nothing. That was already good. We we got the marriage at nothing. That was you know. Groucho Marx once said, I, I worked myself up from nothing to a state of extreme poverty. You know what I mean? Like, you know, so I, my, my goals at this point were just to get them to keep killing each other. You know, just stop there, you know? Anyway, so we worked it out. And now we were ready to move forward. I said, okay, you're married four years. In 21 years, you'll have your 25th wedding anniversary, which your children will make for you after you plan it and pay for it. Yeah? <laughs> going to be a complete surprise. <laughs> you know, the credit card bills come in, you have no idea, and then you leave like a guest list around just so they, they're not going to know who to invite, you know. Anyway, and then you walk in, your goal is to look surprised, you know what I mean? So, anyway, so you're going to get to, and probably you'll have some rebuttal in your life at that point. What do you want them to say about your marriage? So they made suggestions. Uh, they worked well together. Um... They, uh, they accomplished everything they had to accomplish. You know, they, uh, um, they were able to solve their problems without a third party. So I said, you know, you're not really describing a marriage. It's a business partnership. You know, Maxie and Sammy, they worked together for 25 years. They built the whole business. Maxie would go away for vacation in July. Sammy went in August. You know, they worked out all their problems. When they put the building, they didn't need a lawyer. They were able to work it out. Maxie did the buying. Sammy did the selling. You know, I said, it's not a marriage. And they looked at me and asked me a very, very important question. Then what is a marriage? <laughs> yeah? Story number one. Story number two is... I live in Yerushalayim. There's a small yeshiva there that you may have heard of. It's called the Mir. And uh, it keeps expanding. Eventually, you don't even have to leave your house and you'll be in the Mir. You know what I'm just keeps taking over more and more buildings, you know what I mean? At some point, I'm going to realize there'll be a plaque outside my front door. Not a problem. Yeah. It just keeps expanding. Anyway, so I knew some of the guys there who were, who were learning the Mir. From, uh, I used to go to Shio and remember Moshe Shapiro. Some of these guys went... So a guy says to me, who I was friendly with, he says, listen, we're dating. And frankly, we have no idea what we're doing. So would you agree to give us a vod on dating? I said, me? Well, I, have, I have no sheiches. Everybody and his brother's on the, on the payroll of the mirror. You know what I mean? What are you asking me for? I don't have anything with the mirror. There must be somebody who this is their area of expertise. Now, to be fair, this story is almost 25 years old. I don't know if the situation has changed. They don't send me updates, you know. So I don't know. He says, no, there are people who teach you chassan classes. There are people who, you know, deal with other... There's nobody who teaches you when you're dating what you should be looking for. Yeah? So, uh, so I said, yeah, but I'm, I'm busy, you know. That was, you know, there was a time that I, I used to leave the house at 6.30 in the morning, come back at, you know, 10 o'clock at night, you know, 10, actually 10.15. And uh, then I first had it... Uh, you know, phone calls waiting for me and stuff. You know. I said, listen, I'm busy. I don't, have, I don't have time for this. And they said to me, Rabbi Olavsky, if I came to you and said, my marriage is falling apart, you're the only one who could help, would you make time to see me? I said, probably. He says, so it's more time efficient for you to tell me what to do beforehand. <laughs> he said to me, I'm doing this for you. <laughs> 
And I, I, did, I said, like, you know, that makes sense on some twisted level. You know what I mean? I said, okay, fine. He says, look, I'm not going to put up a pet that could say, you know, Rielowski's giving a vada on, you know, because a hundred people will show up, you know. I'm going to invite people who I know who are already dating, you know, and are involved, and I'm going to ask them to come to this, you know, to this vada. I said, okay. So they, he invited, handpicked 15 guys, guys who are already dating, guys who are already involved, you know. And they all show up. They've got their little notebooks. They're all set and ready. You know, I told them no recorders, you know, because uh, unfortunately when people listen to the recorders afterwards and they hear people's questions, it, it doesn't work out well. You know what I mean? And uh, um, I don't know about this because I don't really know about social media. But um, there was some story about these girls in New York whose teacher asked them to do a rap about something. And uh, I see some people nodding already, you know what I'm talking about? I don't really know, but my daughter was explaining this to me. And, uh, and they did it, and someone put it up on YouTube, and it went all over, and everybody said, these girls will never get married now. So it just went around recently that one of the rapper girls got married, just got engaged. So, mazel tov. Anyway, <laughs> but... Uh, but I, I once did a question and answer session. Those tapes were, you know, available to the public. And a guy would hear his voice asking questions that were ridiculous. And, uh, and he has to live with that for the rest of his life. You know? So I didn't want any recorders. I wanted everyone to feel free to say whatever they want, you know. And, uh, you know. And again, you know, we had we had limited amount of time for this, you know. Now they introduced me. I'm a world-famous speaker, which is a nice way of saying a man with no job. So... Uh, <laughs> But back then, I actually had jobs, you know, in which uh, I don't have anymore, thanks to my, you know, wit and personality. But um, so uh, I just travel from town to town, do a minimum amount of damage, and get out before they can catch me. But uh, in any event, so uh, they all sit down. About 15 guys, and I started them off with a trick question. I like to start with a trick question. Yeah. Um, if, if you have a trick question and you throw people off from from their comfort zone, you you make them actually have to stop and think which most people don't. People are, are comfortable talking about the same thing. We just had Pesach, yeah? And uh, I, I know there are some women now who are already getting ready for next Pesach and this. <laughs> so you don't want to leave it to the last minute. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I read, read a, uh, this girl, she says to me, she says, I don't know, Pesach is so hard for me. I have OCD. I said, Great, come to my house. <laughs> I'll give you lots to do. I'll feed right into it. But anyway, so um, in general, in Judaism, we try to give every, you know, mental condition its own expression, you know. So if you have OCD, we have Pesach, you know. If you're a pyromaniac in Eretzor, we have Lagba Omer, you know what I mean, you know. And if you're an alcoholic, we have Purim. You know, we try, you have every deviant behavior, have an opportunity for expression. But... Um, so uh, I, I, come to, uh, I come to my seder one year, we had three or four yeshiva bachram, and one of them brings out his first box of notes. So I said, okay, this is going to be grueling. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I see they're all set, they have all their stuff to say. So I threw them off right at the beginning. I said, why do we have a Pesach seder? Do you know, not one person could give me a coherent answer. He had lots of tires over here, you know, chakiras and, you know, and, and chavos and matzah and, you know, and, and ideas and kub and pesach and all kinds of things like that. But when I get to the very basic, the easiest questions, I learned in a, a yeshiva, a high-level yeshiva many years ago, and uh, 
There was a Shomashiv. In Eretz Yisrael, if you've been learning into your 40s, you know, you could get a job as a Shomashiv. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, he was just there to answer questions. And whenever I'd come over to him, he'd get that nervous look. I know that look. I, I get it from time to time from people. They would like to be anywhere other than talking to me. <laughs> you know? So, uh, so what did my I said, why do you get nervous when I come by? You know, I'm not, I'm not one of the big Tamadechachamim here. He says, Olavsky, you make me nervous because you ask easy questions. Hard questions are easy to answer because hard questions are built on lots of assumptions. He says, but easy questions are hard to answer. He says, and I already know what you're going to ask me. I said, yeah? He says, yeah, you want to know what these two lines are doing in Tysus. I said, right. He says, no one knows what those two lines are doing in Tysus, but you're the only one who will ask it because everybody else is working in the lumbus and how did this work and how did that work and this and that, you know, and you want to know what's actually written here. You know, I was like, yeah, I guess, yeah, that's why nobody can stand you. You know what I mean? Easy, that's why little children are so frustrating because they ask these easy questions that are not based on any assumptions. You know, so uh, it's, a, it's a little challenging, you know. So, uh, so yeah, the easiest questions are the hardest ones to answer. Why do we have a Pesach Seder? What, what's the purpose of it? And people talked around it, but to get to the essence. So I have all these guys gathered here, and I start them off with a trick question. Why should you get married? So one guy, without hesitating, raises his hand. And he says, to give. And he was so impressed with himself, he must have read a book. You know what I mean? <laughs> to give. He looks around the room. Givaldi. To give. So I said, why, there's nobody to give to in the mirror? You can't learn with a younger bacha. You can't clean up the dira. You got to get married to give. He was devastated. <laughs> He definitely memorized this answer. It worked very well on dates. Girls are really like to hear this, you know that. So now, now I'm where I want to be. Everyone's out of their comfort zone, you know. I said, so, why should you get married? So the guy says, uh, well, it's a mitzvah. I said, oh, you'll have a really easy time. First girl you go out with, hit any mukham, is only kind of that. You know, give her the ring, go back to the base medish, I'll meet you out of the chuppah, yeah. So uh, the other guy says, well, to have children. I said, well, you don't really have to meet the girl. You just need to check out her DNA. You know what I mean? Make sure she comes from good breeding stock. You know what I mean? It is a son. <laughs> yeah. So another guy said, well, there's too much to do in life for one person. I said, hire a personal assistant and pay him by the hour. It's going to work out much cheaper. You don't have to buy them jewelry or anything, you know. Trust me, we're just working out dollars and cents, you'll see, you know. And uh, these are the best answers, they were worse answers as well. <laughs> Until finally, basically, they came up with the real answer, which was, my mother is making me. You know that? <laughs> one guy had a variation of that, it's a great one. It's time. <laughs> so finally, and, and this is, like I said, when you take people out of their comfort zone, it's very uncomfortable, right? That's... Uh, idea of a comfort zone, right? So, uh, so a guy says, okay, so what's the answer? I said, I'll share with you what I think the answer is, but I want to start by observing that it's just luck that none of you got engaged yet. Because you all could have gotten engaged, gotten married, and have no idea why. And I said, don't feel bad. If you talk to most married people, they can't answer the question either. That's the truth. Why should you get married? You know? So, 
Here's the, here's the best answer. It's even better than it's time or my mother is making me, yeah? Because this is something you have to know about the firm world. And, and being a member of the firm world, I can say this, you know? And uh, I travel around. I get to see a lot of different communities. Most people do what most people do because that's what most people do. You can write that down. <laughs> Took me a while to memorize it. <laughs> it's one of those quotes I hold on to, which I think, you know, like I say, once you get it down, you try to use it whenever you can, you know. One of my favorites is George Romney in 1968 when he was running for the Democrat. That's Mitt's dad, yeah. He was running for the Democratic nomination. He had this great quote. He said, I didn't say that I didn't say it. I said I didn't say that I said it. <laughs> you know how long it took me to memorize that one? Anyway, try to work it in whenever you can. But um, what do I mean by that? It means most people do what most people do because that's what most people do. Yeah, I, uh, when I used to teach in seminary, uh, I would often mess up these girls terribly because I would, I would encourage them to think. And it never works to your advantage. So uh, they go out with a boy and he'd say, uh, I want to learn long term. And they'd say, why? And they were like, because that's what you do. You, you, you learn long term. They're like, why? Why do you want to learn long term? You know, I, it's, that's what you do. You know, <laughs> that's what you do because you do what everybody does. Because that's what everybody does. You know, and everybody does what everybody does because that's what everybody does. And to take out the time and think back, why am I doing this? How am I doing this? You know, I've been teaching associate Sharm for many years. So the first level that he deals with is Zahiris, which is, of course, a little bit of a question because the Bryce starts with Torah, Torah movie daily, the Zahiris. But uh, it starts with Zahiris. I've never had a really good translation of Zahiris until recently because now the rage in the mental health community is a term they call mindfulness. Mindfulness is to focus on what you're doing. That's Zahiris. That's exactly, that's the best definition for Zahiris. You know, some people translate it as, uh, as uh, um, the, the old translation translated as watchfulness, a word that no one has ever used in real life unless you had the old Masil Sharm translation, or vigilance, another word that nobody ever uses, you know. So, uh, so but mindfulness really captures it. It means to stop and think which is an amazing thing, because uh, um, to, to affirm Jew, it's something that's so ordinary. You know, you, you don't, you're not supposed to do anything without thinking. Although all of us are guilty of it at times, I can't speak for anybody else here. I had a Rebbe in high school who once said to me, everybody has a purpose in life, yours is to be a bad example. And I've, I've really tried to live up to this, you know. <laughs> so I always draw from my own experiences, you know. But uh, I don't know if anybody else, you ever make yourself a cup of coffee and then notice that sometime the cup is empty and you don't remember having drunk it? <laughs> and you're like, what happened to my coffee? <laughs> That's mindlessness, you know? Mindfulness is that you really focus on what you're doing. You know, it has, it has tremendous concentration. These are the stories they used to tell about the Victor Miller's that song. You know, where you feel a group of Bachram gathered around him and then people would you know, see, my gosh, what are they looking at, you know? And he had a bunch of apple seeds. I was explaining to them how the, the nace of this apple seeds turn into tree and turn into fruit and everything that goes with it when you stop to think about it, you know? If you, uh, we say clementina, but I guess over here we say tangerine, you know? Make a bracha on a tangerine, you know? You stop first and you look at it and you smell it and you take it into account and you 
take the bite and you appreciate it, you know. It's a whole different experience, you know. If you, if you don't focus on things, you do things mindlessly, right? Um, since the gentleman who I outnumbered here tonight, I'm going to play to the crowd, you know, uh, any time that a wife has tried to have a conversation with a husband while he's checking his email, but don't worry because he's giving you his full attention because he can repeat back everything that you said. So you might feel that he's not giving you his fullest attention, especially since he starts chuckling in the middle and <laughs> you're telling him about, you know, uh, the accident that your you know, sister got into, you know. Now, Again, you know, that, that could have been appropriate in certain circumstances, but, you know, here it actually didn't fit in, you know, and it was because he was reading this joke that somebody sent him, and I was like, you know, and so, uh, but mindfulness is to be able to give your full attention to something. Unfortunately, you know, on the biggest issues, we tend to do, everyone tends to do what everybody does, because that's what everybody does. And if you stop and think, you know, why am I doing this? What is the purpose? It's revolutionary, you know. And it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I, I have a standard shear that I give. I give this to birthrights who are coming to Israel with more piercing than fish that have been caught. You know, from a fisherman with a hook. Yeah, all over the place. And I give this to the finest base Yaakovs and yeshivas in the world. And it's more or less, I, I, it's called different things, but the, it's basically what I call why be Jewish. I said, why should a person be Jewish? It's based on the Mesil Shashem. And it's the most amazing thing. How few people can actually answer that question. You know? I am work, writing a book on... Um, well, I, I used to write a column for the Hamadiyya on Chinuch. Um, and that was one of the topics I used to talk about. I used to travel around the world talking about Chinuch. And I'd always say, because it's easier than staying home and trying to do it, which is really very hard. <laughs> I'd much rather... All of us chinuch experts, we have no idea what we're doing, but we're very good at telling other people what they're doing wrong. But, uh, so uh, I was writing a comment with for years, and they wanted to put it out as a book. And I said, I don't want, I, I object to that idea of just taking a bunch of articles making a book, because just get past copies of the, uh, of the newspaper, you know, I'm going to charge you to read the newspaper, you know. So, uh, so I was rewriting it, and as I started rewriting it, I realized that I can't talk about chinuch unless I talk about Shalom Bayes. And then I started rewriting it again. That's why this book hasn't come out yet. Yeah? And, um, and I, uh, I realized that there's no way to talk about Shalom Bias unless I talk about life. Because when you get married, you have to make sure you have the same goals in life. You know? You have to make sure that we're going in the same direction. I was talking to a group of young men in their 20s uh, about marriage. And I said, you know, the most important thing in life when you get married is to make sure that you have the same goals in life. Does anybody yet know what their goals in life are? Again, without hesitating, guy raises his hand. I do. What's your goal in life? I'm going to be a dentist. I said, that's not your goal in life. He says, sure it is. I said, no, it's not. He says, I'm in dental school. I said, I'll prove it to you. He says, go ahead. I said, you're in your 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s. Right? You pass away, they're writing your eulogy. You get to listen in. He was a dentist. He filled many cavities. <laughs> he removed many impacted teeth. The guy says, wait. I said, no, I'm getting to the best part. Your tombstone will be a big tooth. <laughs> and it'll say, here lies a dentist, you know. 
So he says, no, 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 uh, you misunderstood. I meant I want to earn my living from dentistry. I said, oh, that's not your goal in life. Right. I said, what is your goal in life? He says, I have no idea. <laughs> I would just tell people I want to be a dentist and everyone said, good for you. Because that's how we were raised to live our lives. You go to university, you, learn a, you get a profession, you know, and, and uh, you, you make money, you get married, you, uh, you have kids, you know, and it's a happy life, you know. And, and you're like 45, 50, and you're like, now what do I do? Right? Basically, you get old and die. That's it. We're basically done with you. You know what I mean? Like, you know. So uh, some people have a midlife crisis because they suddenly realize that they have nothing in their life. I, by the way, am not going through a midlife crisis. I just have to point this out because, uh, you know, uh, um, people see me and they say, you know, you really need a haircut, you know. My mother passed away about two, two months ago. So... Uh, you have to really wait three months to get a haircut. Although my poisic came to my minion last week and said, get one Erev Lagba Omer. Like Erev Erev Lagba Omer. It comes out on, on Sunday, you'll have to get one on Friday. I said, but it's not three months. He goes, I know, but you look like five. So please. <laughs> so people thought I was acting out, like I'm growing my hair in my midlife crisis. <laughs> so so uh, that's not the worst part. The worst part is that my beard grew in white, you know. So I just went to speak someplace, I haven't been there in a few years, and I go, wow, you've aged terribly. <laughs> and I said, well, here's a career killer. Anyway, so, so uh, but, uh, you know, but you see people having midlife crises, you know what I mean, you know, and uh, because they suddenly woke up and they realized that they thought they knew what their life was all about, but they don't really know. You know, and that's, and that's the sad thing. When you see people follow a particular, you know, path, and they don't know where it's going to take them. Yeah, when, a, when, when you say, what's the purpose of life? You can't say, where am I going to be at 40 or 50? You have to say, where am I going to be at 100? Or maybe 110. You know, lifespans have changed dramatically. If you're in my age group, you should be in bed. But if you're in my age group... <laughs> I don't like to stay out this late, but uh, if you're in my age group, so then you know, you know, uh, if you saw somebody who was 70, they were old. They were working with a cane, you know, you know she had a white bun, she was in the kitchen making, uh, you know, rugelach, you know, he was, he was uh, mumbling in Yiddish, <laughs> even if he didn't speak Yiddish. He just, <laughs> You know, whatever I do, it opens like, who's, who's, who's it? My wife's like, why do you think you're going to learn Yiddish? You know what I mean? Yeah? <laughs> but Yiddish was my parents' secret language. They wouldn't let me know it. And I, spoke, and I only went to yeshivas that touched into English or Hebrew, so I never picked up Yiddish, which is really embarrassing because people talk to you, and I'm too old and established to pretend I don't know. So I just go, yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and you try to get it from the context. You know, if you think it was a good thing, you go, yeah, it's a Shana, Shana Zach, you know. Like, <laughs> you know, and if it sounds like it's bad, you go, eh, very massive. Otherwise, I have no idea. You just nod, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I actually did, I went with my son to England. The guy picks me up, he's talking to me in Yiddish the whole trip, you know, I'm answering him, you know. And when we go, my son says, I didn't know you speak Yiddish. I said, I don't. He says, what was he saying? I have the slightest idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> As best as I can pick up, it's basically English with a bad accent, you know? Gibbon the mama a glaza milk. For a vos the mama vilst a glaza milk. If nicht for a vos the mama vilst a glaza As you can see, I once bought the Yiddish a learner. I'm trying to. That's great, you know, I had this sentence in it. Mein house is. 
finster und kalt. <laughs> My house is cold and dark. Why would you want to know how to say that in Yiddish and you're not in Europe anymore? You know what I mean? You know? <laughs> My house is cold and dark. Anyway, so, um, so uh, you know, people, people have to know when you get married. Why, why did you get married? So when you say to people, you know, people are married, you say, you know, why did you get married? You know, you get married because you get married. Because everybody gets married. Because everybody does what everybody does. And that's what I said to this book. I said, you're going out now. You're going to get married. And you can't tell me why. What is the purpose of marriage? And it's, a, and it's an amazing thing. So most of us get our definition why we get married from secular sources, whether we realize it or not. Yeah? That's the real reason that we get married. And that's why um, the title for this evening is He Said, She Said, because we all know that the most important thing in marriage is communication, right? Why is communication so important? So if you read the average secular book on marriage, the reason communication is so important is because you get married and you want to make sure that your needs are met. And so you have to be able to express to your wife what your needs are, and your wife has to be able to express to you what, your, what her needs are, so that we can meet each other's needs. Right? This, is, this is basically, you know, and that's why when you see marriages falling apart, you'll often hear something along the lines of, they're not meeting my needs, I don't feel like I'm getting out of this marriage what I want. Um, it's interesting that uh, there's a Rav, who's also a psychologist and something of a social scientist. And um, society's falling apart, as we know, if you read the Mishpacha. And uh, <laughs> every issue, there's either another crisis or, you know, another, um, uh, or another uh, disease that you never heard of <laughs> that they've suddenly discovered, you know, and then everyone's like, do you think I have this? <laughs> Should be tested, you know. And suddenly, you know, the, the, the Mishnah runs an article on some disease, and everyone's in the doctor the next week. You know, I think, you know, that, that was, you know this pressure for this pressure, you know. You know, so, you know, don't wear such a tight shirt. You won't feel so much pressure. You know, and then, you know. I don't know. I find like after I eat, I'm not so hungry. You know? <laughs> do you think that's a serious condition? You know? <laughs> I remember years ago, years ago, my wife showed me there was this. There was this series in the Yeted about large families. You know, how wonderful it is to have lots of children and how wonderful what a brother. So I said, I said, this is the difference between the publications at the time, you know? And I said, uh, you know, if you, if you read the Yeted, it's like how wonderful it is, you know, and what a brother it is to have large families. And, you know, and all the Gedolim said, you have to have large families. If you read the, the Hamodia, it'll be, Helpful hints for large families. If you read the Mishpacha, it'll be the dark side of large families. The so-and-so family, not their real name, look happy, but are they really? Mrs. So-and-so, you know, a social worker, you know, says, although there is no statistics, anecdotal evidence may suggest. <laughs> I always love that. means we have no idea what we're talking about, but there's no reason not to write an article about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Would suggest that really there are many dark problems going on. <laughs> Shani looks well-adjusted, but is she? <laughs> you know, Shani says, you know, I love my brothers and sisters, but yes, sometimes it is difficult. Duh! <laughs> 
I didn't even love my brothers and it was difficult, you know what I mean? But that didn't mean I want to get rid of them, you know? Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, so that's why it's, it's so important to be able to know for sure, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Yeah? And, uh, and, and this is the problem. People, people do things and they, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, you're supposed to go out, you're supposed to get married, you have a family. Why? So the importance is good communication. Why? So that I can make my needs met and your needs met so we all know that. You know why that's a terrible, terrible concept? Because if I define marriage that way, then essentially I am getting married for me and you're getting married for you and the purpose of marriage is for me to get my needs met and for you to get your needs met, which is a nice way of saying, I'm going to use you, and you'll use me. So I, I, I told you there's all kinds of problems in society. So this social scientist, you know, rabbi social scientist, they asked him, um, is, this a, is society collapsing? And he says, no, these problems always existed. It's just they weren't so out in the open. People didn't know about them so much. He said, but there is one phenomena that's new. And that's young couples who get, mar- get divorced within the first couple of years of marriage. He says, that never happened. That is a new phenomenon. You know? And when I've spoken to these couples on occasion, the line that I hear most often is, I don't have to take this. I don't have to put up with this. You know? Uh, because they've just taken what we've given as a secular definition of marriage to a logical conclusion. I don't need to put up with this. I don't need to take this. Uh, again, I know everybody is in their age group. It might be your grandparents. For me, it was my parents. I never heard my parents say that. Of course you put up with it. You're married. <laughs> you know, you, you, you do. You, you walk into marriage with a sense of obligation, not just entitlement. And so when a person gets married, and the purpose of good communication is to make sure I get out of you what I want, and you get out of me what you want, and basically, we're just using each other for our own purposes. And as long as I can get that, then that's fine. So I'm talking to these Talmudim in the mirror, and they, now they have to get to the fundamental. Why do you get married? I said, okay, it's a general rule. Our enemies understand us better than we understand ourselves. Obviously. Right? Always know your enemies. Eichmann, Yimach Shemo. Spent time in Israel. He spoke Hebrew. He, he learned all about the Jewish holidays. They knew about this stuff very well. They studied up on us. You know? Haman knew all about all the, all the Chazal, knew about all the Nevuas, knew about everything. He understood the, the essence. Paro. Paro understood where the Koyach of Klai Yisrael comes from. Our enemies understand this very well. Bilam Russia wants to curse the Jewish people out of existence. And he tries this and he tries that and he tries whatever he can. And his last attempt, and each one of his clothes got turned into a bracha. And the last bracha he gives us is, Matovu Olecha Yaakov, Mishkan Asecha Yisrael. What does that possibly mean? Look how wonderful are your homes. Each one is a mishkan. What does that mean? Our home is a mishkan. Well, first of all, it's interesting what Bilam means. 
If you take any other people on the face of the earth and you destroy their centralized um, institutions, destroy their central temple, destroy their high priest, destroy their uh, government, destroy whatever you can, that'll be the end of them, right? Uh, you took, take all of Canada, you know, and you distribute them all around the world, right? How many years later will they still identify as Canadians? A few years, you know. One generation, two generations, four generations. After that, don't think of yourself as a Canadian anymore. It's where, whatever country I'm living in. You know? He says, but by the Jews, every home is a Mishkan. There's no way to destroy the base of Mikdash. There's no way to destroy them because every home is a Mishkan. Eliezer comes back to Yitzhak and says, oh, yeah, I got a shidduch for you. First of all, she's beautiful. Beautiful. Second of all, what beautiful Midas. Ah! Wonderful he does. You know, at she's from, she's from, you see over there with the veil fell off the camel. Oh, she's a from girl, you know. And Nisim and it flows. You know, the water came up in the well, you know. Nisim and it flows. And Yitzhak said, very nice. That's all very nice. Um, have her go into my mother's tent and let's see if the Nisim of the Mishkan that took place when my mother was alive takes place. Is the cloud over the tent, like it was over the Beis Mikdash? Does the bread stay warm from Shabbos to Shabbos, like the Lechem upon him? Is the Ner Doluk, like the Ner Mizrahi was in the, in the, uh, Ma'aravi was in the, uh, in, in the Beis Mikdash? I'm not building a home, I'm building a Mishkan. Ma tovo alach Yaakov, Mishkan Look how beautiful are your homes. Every home is a Mishkan. The reason we're getting married is because we are building a Mishkan. We are building a Beis HaMikdash. It's not about me and it's not about you. Let me, uh, let me put this into a context. There is a little vart that you may have heard at some point. Um, either at al Chaim or a vart or uh, under the Chuppah or the Sheva Brachas. At some point you heard this. Yeah, um, if you didn't, it could be the entire marriage is not chal, and you have to make sure I'm safe. <laughs> Ish has a yud, and Isha has a hay. You heard this? Yeah. Ish has a yud, Isha has a hay. Today, they, together they spell Hashem's name. When an Isha and an Isha come together, HaKadosh Baruch Hu joins with them. <coughs> it's usually accompanied with the Rosh Hashanah story. Rosh Hashanah was coming home, and he was fixing up his tie, and, his head, and he's, the Talmud says to him, Rebbe, who, you have a guest at home? He says, yes. When a man and woman live together, you know, with, with peace and Kedusha, Kedush Baruch Hu, the Shekhinah is in their home. Yeah. So, okay, so that's cute. Why does the man have the Yud? Why does the woman have the Hey? What, what is this all about, you know? Because the Yud represents Shemayim, and the Hey represents the Aretz. And where the Shemayim and Aretz come together, yeah, that's the Beis Mikdash. Right? What does Yaakov say? This is, this is Beiskel. This is the Shar Shemayim. This is the ladder. goes up to Shemayim. This is where Shemayim Va'aretz come together. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created everything as one and then separated into Shemayim Va'aretz. Right? HaKadosh Baruch Hu created it as one and then separated it. He did that one at a time. He created a human being together, male and female, and then separated them. Why? 
to teach you that the goal is for them to be together. I separated them only for them to join back together. Where do an Isha and Isha join together? That's marriage. Where does the Shemayim Va'aretz join back together? That's in the base of Mikdash. That's why Yud and K, right, equal 15. There are 15 steps going up to the base of Mikdash. Coincidence? I think not. Yeah? 15 is that number. The Gemara says that Shlomo Melech decorated the base of Mikdash with pictures of couples embracing. Do not try this in your local synagogue, even, <laughs> even if it's very modern. <laughs> it just doesn't go over so well today, surprisingly, yeah? Why? Because he wanted to teach you that the purpose is not that it's supposed to be we go and serve Hashem. Right? Uh, if uh, you ever go to an old United Synagogue synagogue in England, you know, where they built like cathedrals, and you, know, you walk and your footsteps echo, you know, and everything's like, you know, there's people sitting up front with top hats, you know, and at some point someone comes up to the front and says, you are in a house of the Lord, 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 Lord. Please maintain the decorum, quorum, quorum, quorum. You know, you know, there's this sense of like, of like, oh, ah, very heavy. And then we know, Avinu Malkeinu. You're not just our king, you are our father. Karachem of Ahabanim. Ken Tirachem. Ken Tirachem. My wife always said I really wanted to be a singer, but I couldn't get anyone to come, so I always try to work in, work in at least one number when I'm speaking. Yeah? Have mercy on us like a father, have mercy on his son. That's nice. That's not the ultimate. The ultimate is Shir Hashirim, which, when I was growing up, before art school was around, to make the world safe, you know, I had uh, the Birnbaum edition in my, in my shul, although if you have the Sansino, they translate it literally, right? Caused for many embarrassing moments for a poor little teenage boy to hear all of this, um, you know, very graphic description of relationship between men and women. It was Cholomoy Pesach. I was an FBT. I don't know if everybody's familiar with the terms. So they have different terminology. You know, uh, BT is about tshuva. Uh, FFB is from, from birth. Uh, BT, uh, FBT is a flaming balchuva. It was a flaming balchuva. And uh, I'm in Shul, Cholomoy Pesach, Shabbos, and they're reading Shir Shem, and we had the English translation, the Burma. And this 30-something Balabas nudges me and says, Hey kid, here's a great line. I bet a girl would like this. I said to her, Sir, we are in synagogue. This is scripture. Please show a little respect. <laughs> ah, to be young again. Anyway, so now I'll be like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Which is my main answer to almost everything. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so, um, uh, so I, 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 how do you speak this way? But he said to me, he says, How do they let this into the synagogue? <laughs> and he's right. That's why the Chachamim wanted to hide Shir Hashem away. And Rabbi Kiva said, if all of the books are Kadosh, then Shir Hashem is the Kadosh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies. What's the Holy of Holies? The Holy of Holies is the place that Rashi describes in Divya Yamin when they say the Cheder Hamitos, the bedroom. He says, that's the Kadosh Kadoshim. 
when Kaddish Baruch Hu and Klai Yisrael come together like an Ish and Isha in the most intimate sense. That is Shir Hashirim. We describe our relationship with Kaddish Baruch Hu in terms of a passion that comes from an intimate relationship of a marriage that can only come from a marriage. No, not like you can give to some guy in the mirror. You know what I mean? The, the, the joining together of Shemayim Va'aretz, that's what the Kodesh HaKadoshim represents. And that's what, the only way I can understand what my relationship with the Kodesh Baruch Hu is, is through marriage. So if I'm getting married for me, then that's akin to a bumper sticker I remember seeing in the 1980s that said, God, what have you done for me lately? Because I'm looking at a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and the important thing here is good communication. And you hear this sometimes, you have to learn how to daven. So you can really tell Kodesh Baruch Hu what you need. <laughs> Make your needs clear to Kodesh Baruch Hu so he can give you whatever you want. And that's the same way we look at marriage. It's a good relationship for Kodesh Baruch Hu. Because we look at God as, what are you going to give me? And we look at our relationship in a marriage as, what am I getting out of this? That's not the goal. The goal is not about me and you. Okay. So you know, when there's a chosin in shul, you don't say tachna. Why? Because it's a simcha. What's the simcha? That you're not saying tachna. This is the happiest moment in a Jew's life, you know? Especially if it's a Monday or a Thursday, you know? And they say, it's a chassid. And it was like, yes! <laughs> Where are you davening tomorrow? <laughs> well, how can we not say tachna? Because the guy got married. Now, if I go with the secular definition, which says, you know, I'm getting married so that I can get my needs met, and you get your needs met, that's the reason not to say tachna. You know? Guy comes and says, no tachna. He says, why? He goes, ah, oh, I went out last night and I had a steak dinner and then I had a massage. I went for a swim. You know, I feel great. No tachna. Now I know shuls that that's enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> Sounds good to me, yeah? But who cares if you got your needs met? But what's the bracha we always give? You should build a bias neman Yisrael. Because you're building a home for Klai Yisrael. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's about us building something in this world. <coughs> the goals when people got married, yeah, when, uh, when um, uh, my parents got married, you wanted to find a nice Jewish person to get married and have children and bring them up in Judaism. That was the goal to getting married. Yeah? And you understood. Nobody's perfect. And everyone's going to have to work at it, and everyone's going to have to give, and nothing's going to work out the, the, the way you want, but it doesn't matter because it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about us building something in this world. And at some point that changed, and it's about us. Yeah? Just the opposite. It's not about us, it's about me. Right? That's a joke everybody tells, you know, it's, it's the I generation. There's the iPhone, and the iPod, and the iPad. It's all about I. So I said this over once, and someone said to me, no, because it's we. Yeah. <laughs> we is this game that you play. Yeah? I said, but even we is two eyes. <laughs> the way they say it in Israel is, today, yesh bizli, yesh kefli, pamaya krep loch, kneb loch. But we understand this. People tend to be, listen, part of it is that our parents brought us up with a sense of entitlement, you know? Our parents, you know, or for you might have been your grandparents, you know, had, uh, had a very rough life, 
you know, they grew up in the Depression, they literally didn't have food to eat, and their goal was to be able to raise their children that they should have everything they want. And we grew up having everything we wanted, and that's what we expect. I want to get everything that I want. So two people get married, each one of them was raised to believe that I want to get everything that I want. And I understand the frustration that then goes into a relationship. Because you're not meeting my needs. I'm not getting what I want out of this. You're not doing my... Yeah. You ever see that, uh, that sign? It says, be reasonable, do it my way. You understand that? You know? <laughs> because it's not about us building something. Yeah. The idea that I'm trying to build a home and it has nothing to do with what I want. I bring this as an example not to offer any moral insight because whenever I, you know, whenever I speak, I always say it's a value-free zone. I'm not trying to sell anything here. You know? uh, but this is my shahoya, just to put it into perspective. Yeah. Uh, this young lady says to me, you know, I went out with this boy, and he wants to go to movies. And I said, I don't want to go to movies. I'll show you how old the story is. I said, I don't want to go to movies. If you want, if you want to watch a movie, then we'll rent a VCR. <laughs> Remember these to be VCRs? Remember when you had to rent them? Anyway, we'll rent a VCR, and we'll watch in the house. I said, listen, I'm not telling you you should go to movies, you shouldn't go to movies. I said, but if you think it's wrong, then for sure don't bring it into your house. Your house has to be a makam kadosh. You know, that whatever, you, whatever you think. Rabbi Olawik said, he heard once from an Adam Gadol once, that in your house, you always have to speak a different language than they speak on the street. He says, when I was in America, I spoke to my kids in Yiddish. When we moved to Israel, you know, I spoke in English. So I moved to Israel because the only language I can speak is English. So this way I know I'm speaking a different language than they speak on the street. <laughs> They said, why don't you speak to your kids in Hebrew? I said, because they'll end up in special ed. You know what I mean? Because uh, the way I speak Hebrew, you know, I was like, you know. When I speak in Hebrew, even the Israelis say, speak in English. <laughs> I said, do you speak English? He says, no, but I speak Hebrew. And what you're doing has nothing to do with it either. So you might as well speak in English. But, uh, you know, but the home is a different place. Um, I heard from uh, Rabbi Geisler. He told me that when his mother passed away, so he says, her father, she didn't tell stories, her father was a, a chassid, a chidush you know, he says, he never walked into his house, ever, he knocked on the door, and waited for his wife to open it, never, I never walked into my house, he says, I never heard them raise their voice, I never saw them upset, there was one time after shul, we had, she, we, we had a lot of company at the house, and my father was coming home late, I don't know, he was schmoozing with somebody, he says, oh, he's going to get it when he comes home. He's going to get it. So he knocks on the door, he opens it out, he goes, good yantiv, good yantiv, you know, and they come in, you know, and they sit down. So afterwards, he said, she said to her mother, he says, I thought you said he's going to get it. He goes, oh, you didn't see? I only smiled like this. <laughs> I smiled like this. He knew he was in trouble. <laughs> we know there are homes that you walk into where you can feel, although you may not be able to put it into words, you can feel Kedusha. But in order to do that, there has to be this idea of me and you. I tell over the story. I've seen now other people tell it over, Baruch Hashem. I am the only source for the story. I know this. Because when I first started telling it over, people said to me, how could it be you're the only one who knows this story? So I know this story because when I used to teach in Ar Samach, I gave a Chumashir in the afternoon in the beginner's program. And I, I had a combination of beginners in Ar Samach and guys who were learning in Mir and Brisk. They would come to my Chumashir. Because although I presented it in simple terms, I was giving my own Chidushim and, uh, you know, um, uh, 
so uh, I have all kinds of different people, you know. So one of the people who came was uh, Rav Nassim Finkel's um, Gabai in the mirror. And he told me this story. It's an unbelievable story. The first part of the story a lot of people know because it was an e- email, right? Uh, Howard Schultz, who's the head of Starbucks, said that him and a bunch of businessmen had uh, taken a trip to Israel, very wealthy people. And they met with a whole bunch of different personalities, and one of them was with Nassim Svee. And he said to them, what did we learn from the Holocaust? Oh, you have to have a country, never again, you know. He says, no, what we learned from the Holocaust is that five people could sleep with one blanket. I remember I said this over once, and somebody who was in the Holocaust said, Halavai, we had a blanket. But uh, the, point, the point he was making was based on a schmooze by Rav Chaim Shmulavitz, because it says that in the door of Yehuda Ba'iloi, they were so poor that five people could sleep with one, five people had to sleep with one blanket. Rav Chaim Shmulavitz says, how could five people sleep with one blanket? He says, there's only one way. Every time the blanket comes to you, you make sure and push it to the next guy so that you're more worried about the next person being covered than you. That's the only way. Otherwise, if you fight over the blanket, no one's going to get covered. Yeah? He says, we learned that five people can sleep with one blanket. He says, you have a blanket. Go back to America and share it with the people who don't. That's what he wrote in an email. Because Gabai said, he came back another time by himself. And he wrote a check, signed it, handed it to Avnassan's fee and said, fill it out for whatever you want. Now, at the time, the budget of the mirror was $2 million a month. And you know, Nussan Svi had to schlep around with, with his Parkinson's. It was very difficult. Besides the fact that he had to leave the yeshiva and his Talmidim, just the physical strain. The Gabbai said there were some, some days when he just had to lie on the bed and he couldn't move. I would read the Gemara, you know, he just he couldn't move. So for him to have to schlep around, he could have written in $2 million, had a month off. How much was one to throw twice back? He said, I can do whatever I want this check. He says, yeah. He filled it out for $1,200. He handed it back to him and said, take it to that store over there across the street and buy yourself a pair of tefillin and put it on every day. That's what you can do for me. Because Nussan's fee didn't look at him and say, what can I get out of you? He looked at him and said, I've got my own blanket I want to share with you. It's called Torah. I have an opportunity to do something for another year. I'm going to just look at myself. Ah, kama v'kama, when you're in a marriage. So, my 35th anniversary is coming up in Sivan. And, um, uh, I remember when I got, thank you. And, uh, I remember when I, uh, something tasteful. Uh, but anyway, if you want to send something. Anyway, but, uh, <laughs> not for me, for my wife. But, uh, but uh, when I was, um, when I first got engaged, I was a kid, you know. And the old man in the shul comes over to me. You know the old man in the shul? Every shul has the old man in the shul. You know? He's the one walking around saying, who let the kids into the kiddush? You know? <laughs> you know? Why didn't you put your sitter back? You know? you know the old man in the shul. Anyway, so, Mincha uh, doesn't start for another 40 seconds. <laughs> so, uh, after the rabbi made the announcement, so he comes to me at the end of the davening, he says, you getting married? And I said, yeah. He goes, why? I said, what do you mean? I'm in love. He says, what do you know about love? He says, when you make $25,000 a year and your expenses are 27000 and you give up 2000 of what you need for your wife, then talk to me about love. You tell how old the story is. Those are the numbers we were working with. You know? He says, uh, when the kid gets a little night and is sick and you tell your wife, you stay in bed and I'll go get the kid, then talk to me about love. Yeah? 
Love is when you make sure the other person is covered with the blanket. But if it's a question of me communicating with you what my needs are and I want you to meet my needs, and I'll meet as much of your needs as I need to to make sure I get my needs met, that's not a marriage. That's a business partnership. And that's what I said to that couple at the beginning of the, of the story where they said, you know, what is a marriage? I said, a marriage is a mishkan. It's a marriage is the two of us are building something beyond ourselves. Remember when I said it to this couple? He said, I used to feel that way. And she said, so did I. And he said, what happened? And I said, I'll tell you what happened, because instead of focusing on what's important, you start arguing about who's taking out the garbage and who's going here, and what do I, what do I need this for, and what do I go here with? And you, each one of you moved into your own needs instead of worrying about the other person, making sure the other person is covered. You know? When a person is looking to the other person, then I begin to get an understanding. I begin to understand how to relate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that's the idea of marriage is not about us. The Jewish people are as strong as their weakest home. <laughs> you understand, now you understand why it says, the end of Gittin, and when a family gets divorced, even the Mizbeach cries. Because it's a chudin beis mikdash. When you get married, that's binyan beis mikdash. Od Yisham Avara Yehuda V'chutzos Yerushalayim. We're talking about the Geula. Kol Sosan V'kol Simcha. Kol Chosan V'kol Kala. That is what a marriage is. When, they, when, when, when the Chos and Kala come together, that's us and the Kaddish Baruch Hu coming together and building ourselves a home. <coughs> Five tragedies happened on Tisha B'Av. The first basement was destroyed. The second basement was destroyed. The Gezerah was made on the Jews in the Midbar that they would all die in the Midbar. Yeah? The city of Betar was wiped out. So many people that the blood ran like a, like a river. And Tanis Rufus plowed the Harabayas. Okay, that's too bad. He plowed the Harabayas, you know, a disgrace. How do you compare with these other things? Abraham saw the Harabayas and he saw it as a har. Yitzchak saw it as a sada, he saw it as a field. And Yaakov saw it as a home, as a house. A house where a husband and wife live together. When Tanis Rufus plowed the Harabayas, he says, you don't have a home with Hashem anymore. You only have a field. A field is a place you go to do business. It's not a place where you live. You've lost your home. Yeah? If Ari Levin gets into a taxi and the driver says, no evla baitchelcha. Where's your home? Ishti meita. My wife died. Ingli bayit. Rakeshli dira. I don't have a home. I just have an apartment. I'll tell you where it is. Because, because when a husband and wife come together, that's a bias. <clears throat> that's the bias that so. The goal to making a marriage work is to know it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about us building something in this world. We look beyond. So, can I know her? I have a lot of children. And people come over sometimes and they say, well, you have a lot of children. And I said, yes, I do. Isn't it hard? Yes, it's very hard. Absolutely, it's hard. It's hard emotionally, it's hard physically, it's hard on every level. And they said, then why do you do it? Sometimes people come over our house and they find we have a lot of Shabbos guests. And they say, well, you have a lot of Shabbos guests. And I said, yeah, I know, because you know, people in America 
you know, pay tens of thousands of dollars to send their children to yeshiva and seminary, and then they're left homeless every Shabbos. They have no place to <laughs> They depend on the kindness of strangers to take in your children. You know, I say, so yeah, we have a lot of guests. And they say, isn't it hard? And I said, yes. A lot of cooking and cleaning and serving and entertaining, you know what I mean? <clears throat> and so they say, then why do you do it? Because at some point, instead of us doing something to make the world a better place, to build something in this world, the major commandment is take it easy, chill. You know, I don't need this. That's not the, that's not the way a Jew lives. I have a friend who's a psychiatrist. He's really just a friend. I don't know him professionally. <laughs> I always feel obligated to point that out. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he said to me, he's of my generation, so he, uh, he told his parents he's going to become a psychiatrist. So his father said to him, if you're going to go through all that work and schooling, why don't you become a real doctor already? You know? He says, because I want to help people. He says, and people are going to pay you for this? So he says, yeah. So he said, when I was growing up, we were too busy making a living to be crazy. So I said to him, no. I would have heard the same thing from my father. Yeah, good gazak. What do you say? He says, you're right. People managed, but they lived substandard lives because they didn't bother trying to make things better. You, you, you put up with it. What are you going to do? As I spoke to one older couple, you know, um, I said, uh, you know, uh, are you happy? He says, happy? Who's happy? Who cares if you're happy? Yeah? I said once on the tape, this is an old story. Well, there used to be tapes. You know? <laughs> guy says to me, he says, I heard you were saying on a tape once that your wife is your best friend. Do you really believe that? I said, yeah. At this point, she's my only friend. But, you know, <laughs> but uh, he says, why is your best friend? He says, yeah. He goes, I was really challenged by that because my wife's not my best friend. This guy's a Rosh Kolo. He says, so I went around the Kolo and I asked everybody and nobody said that their wife was their best friend. Most people said that their marriages are very difficult. One guy said it's almost impossible. I said, how do you deal with it? He said, eventually you die. <laughs> That's not a way to live. And Baruch Hashem, we're here this evening because there's an organization that says to people, you don't have to live that way. There are resources that can help you have a better marriage, have a better life. And as I said, Klai Yisrael is as strong as its weakest family. And if there's an organization that people can turn to because therapy is expensive, counseling is expensive, so are medical bills, right? If you go to a real doctor, as, uh, as my friend's father said, you know, uh, these things are difficult. Obamacare is on its way out. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's something that a person really needs to, to have to be able to deal with, you know? And the fact that there are people who are concerned to share their blanket, to make sure that that next couple, forget about getting divorced, I'm not even talking about that, you know? Some people don't have enough motivation to get divorced. <laughs> you know? That already takes too much energy, you know what I mean? Woody Allen, uh, he said we was having trouble with his marriage, so we decided that we'd either, you know, take a vacation to Florida and work on our marriage, we'll get divorced. And I decided, you know, a trip to Florida, two weeks, it's over, but a divorce you have forever, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, there are people that don't even have the, don't even have the, uh, the wherewithal, you know? 
I said, why should people live substandard lives? Do you understand that if you make it possible this evening for couples that are not living like the way a Jewish family should be, and, and you know how many couples, it's scary, how many couples I've met where they're married and they're living apart, and I, I'm shocked every time, and I went to this rub once, and I tell him about somebody in his community who came over to me to speak to me about the fact that they were living apart. And I didn't know why they looked so uncomfortable until he told me that they were too. You know? If I can help people to live a more fulfilled life, to build a family, and that's going to be something that's better for them and better for their children and better for the next generation and, and better for Klai Yisrael. You're going to build the base of Mikdash. That's why we're here this evening. And there are so many priorities. I can't, I can't, uh, I can't prioritize. But if you're here this evening, it's because somewhere in your heart you understand that to see a couple that's in pain, or struggling, or not succeeding, or chas v'shalom, on the verge of a divorce, and I can help to change that situation, I'm changing it l'dari daros. I'm changing it for them and their children and their grandchildren, and I can tell you, that when families fall apart, or if they don't fall apart, and they live with this kind of acrimony, how it affects the Doros. And if we can turn it around, that we are what a Kodesh Baruch Hu wants, bringing Shalom, making Shalom in families, making Shalom in Klai Yisrael, this peace can be able to create for us and all the bracha in Klai Yisrael. The Hashem, all of us who are here this evening, our support is so important for this important project. Thank you very much.